This is Tush. And I welcome you to Tushalicious Talk, an Oklahoma City podcast for titillating women, tantalizing conversation. And I thank you in advance for allowing me to be your one-stop shop advocacy connection. Hello again, and welcome back to another episode of Tushalicious Talk. This is the podcast where I attempt to intersect real life with advocacy and politics in Oklahoma. And as the co-president of the League of Women Voters in Oklahoma County, for today's episode, I welcome Amy Kieran from Generation Citizen. And as always on the first uh, Thursday of every month, Stephanie Henson, who is the vice president for the State League of Women Voters in Oklahoma. Um, And I have done just a few things with Amy. I try to push her stuff on our emails all the time. And if you could tell us a little bit more about Generation Citizen and what it is that you do, the title, your title, and the responsibilities and so forth. Pretty please. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Um, Like you said, my name is Amy Curran. Uh, My pronouns are she and her. I'm the executive director for Generation Citizen Oklahoma, and I sit on the steering committee for the Civic Learning Coalition for Oklahoma. Um, So with Generation Citizen, we are on a mission to really start a movement to support students um, learning government and learning civics, but doing it through project-based learning in a way that they are actually getting their hands dirty and engaging with policies, working with community leaders, um, working with policymakers to improve their communities as we speak. And so that it's a, it's an honor and a privilege. And we are in school districts here in Oklahoma, um, in Oklahoma city, we're in Tulsa. Um, but we are as far as Guyman and in Meeker. And so lots of different communities. So I have the privilege to do that. Um, as far as the civic learning coalition, um, that part is really to make way. And a lot of, I think what we'll talk about today is, um, we are currently living in a time where there is disagreement about how students should learn civics, how they should talk about our government, and how they should participate. And so I work with students. Some are eligible to vote and others are not. But we believe both through the coalition and Generation Citizen that every student um, has um, civil rights protected by our Constitution to allow them to participate, to um, let their voices be heard, and to really advocate for their communities that they care so deeply about. Yes, thank you. Thank you so much. I didn't realize you were so far all over Oklahoma. That is so cool. Thank you for being an active part of uh, advocacy in Oklahoma. And so again, Stephanie, um, you know, we're basically talking about tension of educational bills this legislative season. So I want to know if you have any opinions of what's going on before we get started on the agenda. As far as what's going on, I know maybe in the national conversation too, it's the, um, I mean, when you talk about education, it seems to be a lot that, you know, it it comes down, I think, a little bit to the tension. I mean, you've asked me about the tension and I want to say this idea of, and I love what you said, Amy, about children coming to school to learn and to find their voice and to find their, and I think maybe the tension being, you know, how there's a lot of emphasis on parents' rights, I guess now, and it feels like that's a little bit of a tension. Um, you know, I've mentioned on this podcast before how much I love Robert Putnam and uh, and and I have other friends who've taught education at OU. I was talking about my friend, um, John Kowaleski, who taught um 
you know, the sociology and philosophy of education. And they talk a lot about this sort of collective feeling, especially he, they talk a lot about the, you know, and he's a John Dewey scholar. So this beautiful idea of the 1970s as sort of being this beautiful time when we really embrace that. I, I, I want to say, you know, that Hillary Clinton line that uh, it takes a village, but we really did embrace that adults' roles, all adults' roles were to look out for all kiddos. There was sort of this collective sense of school, you know what I mean? And that it was sort of, so the 1970s, my friends who know a lot more about this than what I do, they sort of point to the 1970s. And I and I guess, too, I only experienced it as a student of the 1970s. You know, I started school and, and was in my youngest years in the 1970s. And they were doing all these really cool things with open concept. But you felt, you had this feeling that all of the adults were there to look out for you. There wasn't an adversarial relationship between parents and teachers. And that's the way I hear it discussed now in the this yeah. the tension. It seems like there's this adversarial sense that I just didn't get for me. So, so again, this period of the 1970s in which I got to grow up was just this period of the adults were there to care for me. And I felt lifted up by my community, whether it was my neighbors on the block who were looking out for me and giving me opportunities for little jobs, or whether it was my teachers, my librarians, my principal, my parents, everybody was working together to lift me up. They wanted to see all the kids thrive. And the tension to me now seems that it's more competitive and less about collective being together, but it's more about competing to somehow be the the best, maybe, or, you know, or I, I don't know, how would you, does that, and I don't know if this is just what I'm feeling intuitively, or if it's what... Well, I think I have the advantage of both working with teachers and students across the state and raising two boys that are in high school. Um, one thing that I thought was interesting, well, first, let me say, I think we have to be careful about letting that narrative go too far because it's really not based in reality. And there was a lot of research done during COVID and post-COVID about who do parents trust. And the number one person or people category that they trust across the country in rural areas and urban areas, in red states and blue states, um, are teachers and school administrators. And so the thing, the trick is that um, there is some along with that data is the information that while they trust their teachers and their administrator, they're not so sure about a district that's nearby that has students that are different than them. Mm. And so it's not the parents and teachers aren't trusting their schools. They're trust theirs. They just are hearing, I think, so much negative rhetoric that it causes them to think, well, this isn't happening in my school, but we should sure protect the mm. parents' rights in this other school. And that's something to just think about because I have really not met anyone um, who says, I don't trust my the teachers at my own kid's school or my grandkid's school. Um, perhaps those people are out there, um, but I have not engaged with them. It is more of we are like, who are these parents that we are protecting their rights? Because as a parent, I want my children to be taught honest history. I want them to be taught sex ed. I want them to be taught about how communities can disagree and how communities can sometimes even make big mistakes that have long lasting consequences, but they are empowered to change that moving forward. So, you know, I don't right now feel like my parental rights are being protected with some of the things that we're going to get to talk to here, talk about here um, in a minute. So, yeah, yeah. I feel like as a black parent, um, in the past, 
there's definitely we did not want our kids feeling uncomfortable with books with the N-word. But I feel like, so to speak, we didn't really get no one in the black community. They didn't come and ask us, you know, what's your opinion on the book ban? You know, so somehow it feels like a little bit of a Trojan horse somehow um, as far as there's like this animosity or this supposed animosity between parents and teachers because I don't really see it existing either because nowadays you don't even you know when we were kids yeah we did read books with the n-word but nowadays you don't even read it anymore so um I'm I'm very confused as to a lot of the book bans and why they are taking place because I'm with you I don't see a lot of people saying oh my god don't let my kids have access to a book so not, not to mention that if you ban a book just like if you ban anything that's one way to get more students to read it that's right so you know it's really not doing anything yeah um other than confusing people. That's right. That's right. And a lot of us are very confused. Yeah. And I appreciate that you're saying that about the the narrative that that's, so is it that it's just a really small fringe and we think that that narrative is a lot bigger that there's a, or. I mean, that would be my that? assumption because I just don't know these people. Like I re, I hear right. them, I hear them on the floor when I'm listening to debate. I hear them, um, you know, in social media, I hear them in being interviewed and they're talking about these parents who are just appalled. And yet when they're asked to show said parent, there is no one there that they are showing. Yeah, that's kind of what I meant by a Trojan horse, but I'm not really sure what it's a Trojan horse to. It seems like there's definitely another agenda, but it's not up front and forward what it is. Well, it seems strange, too, because it's typically, you know, I, I'm a fifth generation Oklahoman, um, raised in northwest Oklahoma. I understand um, you know, the values of conservatives and moderate conservatives in this state and it's small government. And this is the opposite of small government. This is big government. This is government getting involved in everything down to the, you know, daily agenda of our teachers, mm -hmm. which is one of the laws that we'll talk about here in a minute. Mm -hmm. That is absolute government overreach by the way that I understand mm -hmm. Oklahoma values as I've lived here for five generations. Um, so it is confusing yeah. and, um, I'd go so far as to say it's asinine. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I do want to discuss, um, the difference between education secretary and superintendent of education, like as far as the roles go, because we have a situation right now to where, um, our superintendent is also the education secretary, and I, I tried to see if that has been the case before in Oklahoma, and I have not been able to find that that has been. Do you know if it has been a thing before? I can help answer that question. Um, so, no. Until, so the governor has the ability to select, I think I want to say like around 28 secretaries, and they can range from various different categories. Mm -hmm. And they put their cabinet together based on what they need. The idea, my understanding is the idea of like a secretary of education comes because we elect our su superintendent of public instruction mm -hmm. as a state. Some states don't do that. Some states, they're appointed. Since we do that, there becomes a tension. Like if you have one party or one political like view of education in one going one direction and then another, mm -hmm. then you would appoint a secretary of education to help mediate, you know, kind of mediate that. Right. That's the most positive way I can put it, but would do that. What was interesting was we had a Republican um, 
Secret, or sorry, superintendent of public education mm-hmm. in Joy Hoffmeister. Um, and then we had a Republican govern, governor. Right. You would think that would all work out, but the two of them did not see eye to eye. In mm-hmm. fact, she ended up ultimately switching parties and running um, against him. But when there was that disagreement, then they the governor made the decision to appoint a secretary of education. What is confusing is why you would keep that role. And I can only imagine it is because of, I mean, money is the only reason I can imagine it because you wouldn't have, and they do do different things. And I don't want to get too in the weeds because I can't even tell you. I mean, the superintendent runs the department of education. Mm -hmm. The secretary is more oversight. So yeah, you can go through in more detail those things. So they do do different things, but you wouldn't think you would need oversight of yourself. Um, Yeah. So So the superintendent of education, I got this from Wikipedia. Um, The primary function of the state superintendent is giving advice and making recommendations to the state board of education on matters pertaining to the policies and administration of the state department of education, as well as the public school system. Their responsibility is also to interpret and implement the policies of the State Board of Education. And then they advise the district superintendents of the schools on questions as to the powers, the duties and the functions of the of the school district um, officials. Um, Then they are they have administration, coordination, supervision, promotion, evaluation and improvement of educational programs on their plate. And there's a lot more responsibilities. These are just the ones that I thought were most prevalent. Then as far as the education secretary goes, um, that person is chiefly responsible for ensuring accountability and performance from the educational system from early childhood programs on up through college and Votech and so forth. They oversee all of the libraries in the state which I thought was very interesting (laughs) and is responsible for ensuring that teachers are appropriately prepared to perform their duties. Um, They monitor the effects of the local school districts to comply with the state standards. They make recommendations to the governor and to the legislature on methods to achieve an aligned, seamless system from preschool on through post-secondary education. And then they submit recommendations regarding funding for education and statutory changes to the Speaker of the House, the President um, pro tempore, and the governor. So it, it seems like they have a lot that intertwine with each other, but that they're two separate Um, roles because there is that fine line and you want to make sure that one is actually over um, giving the advice while the other one is actually ensuring the accountability. And so, you know, for anyone listening, what we have right now is a situation where the person that just became the superintendent, they were previously or, or they are, well, yeah, they were previously the education secretary. Technically, that position ended on January the 9th, or that term position uh, ended on January the 9th. And they have been recommended by the governor to be the education secretary again while still, uh, while being elected as the superintendent of education. And so they're getting two different paychecks from our tax dollars um, for both roles. Um, But the interesting thing about it is that the Senate has to um, 
confirm and approve, if you will, who the education of secretary is, whereas the public decides who the secretary, I'm sorry, who the superintendent of education is. And as of today, and again, that term ended on January the 9th, the Senate still has not endorsed this person as the education secretary. And so that further leads to my confusion as to why. Why is do this Do we not? know for sure that he's still getting both paychecks? I do not. I do not. What I read, it said that he was, but I didn't, I was not actually able to confirm that. I read it in the newspaper that he is getting both paychecks, but I was not able to verify it for myself. Yeah. I think that it's, <laughs> it's interesting. It's also, you know, one of the few scenarios where you can get pull two paychecks from the state. So, you know, we have several teachers, um, Republicans and Democrats who are educators who sit, who are elected into the legislature. Mm -hmm. They actually have to resign from their teaching jobs because they can't pull two state right. paychecks. Right. So I think that's also interesting and why I would assume one is an elected official and one is an appointed Official, although you would think, you know, why can't we just appoint our teachers as? Yes, you are correct. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, something something doesn't seem like the up and up on all of that. And I think that it's just another smoke and mirrors as far as like who's making what decision, um, how, you know, what authority are they making that decision with? I mean, is he really making the decision as secretary of education if he hasn't been confirmed by the Senate? Well, and the governor, the governor is the one that appointed him to be and selected him to be. So how is it that there's that tension between the Senate and our governor? Like what? I don't know. I thought I just thought it was extremely interesting. I'm definitely going to dig into it some more and see if I can find the answers. Um, and what I actually Googled was, does the education secretary have influence upon the superintendent of education? Because then I could see if there's supposed to be some type of influence, why the Senate would be reluctant to to confirm to have the same person as the superintendent and the education of secretary. Yeah. So um, with lot, lots of bills <laughs> that have been going on this legislative season, not just in Oklahoma, but all over, like Stephanie was saying, there's, um, you know, the, the parents' rights. We're supposed, we're supposed to be focusing on the parents' rights and the students' rights and the civil rights and so forth. And we've um, got... Uh, the transgender sports law um, and then of course all of the book bans we're still dealing with the critical race theory um, issues which was actually from last legislative season but we're still trying to figure out how it's going to be implemented this season um, and so I also read this other article from Oklahoma Policy Institute and it said that Oklahoma Attorney General Jentner Drummond issued an opinion today that the State Department of Education can only promulgate administrative rules and situations where they are instructed or authorized to do so by the legislature. Functionally, functionally this opinion means accreditation rules approved March 23rd by the State Board of Education concerning library books, sex education, and student gender and sexual identities are invalid and may not be enforced. The new rules are void. And so that's where I was hoping that you would have um, an opinion for me to um, latch on to as to all these, because the, I hate to say the word fight, but that's what it seems like is there's been such a huge fight this legis this legislative season between 
um, the civil rights of this person and the rights of this person and, you know, the students and so forth. So are these rules going to be in in effect this upcoming school year? Like what is going to happen? (laughs) I feel like you're asking me to read a a magic, you know, ball or something. Um, No, I thought that that was um, a great I mean, I definitely ap- agree with the opinion. Mm-hmm. So we'll start there. Okay. Um, I do know like the backstory is there was no effort made um, by the superintendent of public instruction to work with the legislature. So what ideally would have happened now, this is whether you agree or disagree with these rules. Um, the process would be that the superintendent would reach out to the legislators and say, look, I think we need to have a law that does whatever, mm-hmm. protects, violates, right? What, however you right. want to put it. Um, but that would be the process. And so, um, and then they would work to do that. And then what happens when you do that is you have the opportunity for different groups to comment on it, to um, for different groups to, or different individuals to give their perspective, for different, for it to actually be on the floor of both the House and the Senate for debate. I mean, these are basic, like basic democratic practices. Mm -hmm. He chose not to do those things. Mm -hmm. He chose to say, I don't care if the legislature is going to do this. I am now sitting in a seat where I will just make the rules. And once they're rules, you can't change them very easily. And so when it's a law, the next session, we can come back and say, look, we want to change this. We want to amend this. That is how democracy works. Um, So again, you know, with my role with Generation Citizen, um, that's what we're trying to do is teach people the process. It has nothing to do with whether or not you dis- you agree or disagree with these laws. It is an absolute, you know, degradation to our democratic practices for him to do this. So um, I very much disagree with him taking that path. I agree with the attorney general for doing it. But as far as what that means in practice, I literally have, I have no idea. Mm. Because it's so confusing. And you've got to imagine the the State Department of Education, they work for the superintendent. Our state school board was appointed, most of them by our governor. Like now we've got a situation of like, it's like, are you going to, you know, stand by this? Are you going to back down? Mm -hmm. And our experience with um, our superintendent, um, Walters, is that he has not really backed down. Um, and so, um, the other thing that's kind of interesting is you talked about civil rights and we do have a process where you can actually, you know, file a lawsuit when your, your civil rights have been violated Mm -hmm. and it goes through our court systems, it goes through district courts, and then it goes to the Supreme court. Ultimately, someone's going to have to be accountable for that. And Drummond is the lawyer for the state. (laughs) So it would be in his best interest. Like this decision doesn't even really say, well, I agree or disagree. I mean, that's not his role with the rules. Mm -hmm. But he's like, I'm not going to defend our state violating these civil rights, especially when it didn't go through any kind of democratic channels. So to me that there's some comfort in that, that at least somebody respects protocol protocol and our democracy and so in that specific instance, I think that that it's, you know, he did the right thing. I just don't know how that's going to play out because we have had 
a series of breaking down our democratic practices Mm -hmm. to where now people who live in Oklahoma are unsure if those rights are even protected. Right. I have have a question I'd like to pose to both of you right now, because several times as I'm hearing everybody speaking about this issue, and maybe it's the way I fit, but, but we've used the word confusing, uncertain. And is that perhaps part of the whole, do you know what I mean? Like, is yeah. the idea that we are, everyone is left confused. Parents are confused. Teachers are confused. Administrators, you know, children are confused. And it's, and that in that confusion, we are afraid to take the beautiful risks that maybe we would take in an open, in a school in which you can feel like curiosity and exploration and adventure and uh, taking risks is celebrated. Instead, we're so confused and we're so afraid and we're becoming the fear of breaking a rule or being fired or being called out. I don't know. Is confu- My question to you guys is, is confusion part of the I believe so. I believe we're intentionally confusing people and we're intentionally scaring and intimidating them. That's what I kind of. Yeah, that's kind of where I was going with the Trojan horse thing. And it reminds me of this term that I read before trial by ambush, which is where um, in a in a courtroom, it's a tactic that lawyers use. And so the person uh, that they're up against, the lawyer that they're up against and their client, they hit them with so many um, irrelevant things, but they try to make them seem like they're relevant, that the other lawyer is steadily spinning their head around trying to deal with the A, B, C, D, E, F, G of what has been thrown at them when there's really a whole nother agenda over here. But they're so busy. They have been ambushed over here and spinning their head over here that they don't even have time to see what's going on over there. And so and that's where I say, like, it, it does kind of feel like it's a Trojan horse for something else, but I just don't know what. And I don't want I, I definitely say that with my league hat off because I have absolutely no proof of nothing. But it ju- it does. It feels just so it, confusing is definitely the word for it. Like we just don't know what's going on. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how this next school year is going to go. We don't know who has the rights to what. And I mean, even um, as far my heart definitely goes out to the transgender students because I definitely hear what they're saying as far as we can go to school and we can be ourselves, no matter what religion our parents are at home or, you know, what our parents' beliefs are at home. If I feel a different way, I can go at school and be who I really feel like I am. And now if the teachers are required to tell the parents, oh, well, you know, your child is coming to school in a dress or your child goes by um, Andrea instead of Andrew at school, Um, And I'm definitely I've heard stories personally of the parent that wants to, quote unquote, beat the gayness out of their child, you know, and my heart goes out to them. But I just there's definitely two sides to it. I don't know which one is the the right way to go, because I, I definitely hear the parent side as well. Like, you know, there are the supportive parents out there that don't have an issue that are not going to beat the gayness out of their child. But they just never really it didn't click in their head that their child may have been from the LGBTQA community, you know, and it would be nice that if the other parent knew that, oh, well, thanks for telling me, you know, so I just I don't know. But um, one thing I could say that is happening is that we have, you know, I get to work with a lot of administrators and a lot of teachers. And while this chaos is happening, they are still creating safe welcoming environments in their schools. They are still teaching honest history. They are now they are watching and they are making sure that they are following 
to the law. What, you know, but they are not. I'm, so I think, I guess I, I don't want people to listen in on this and think, oh my goodness, these schools, like that's so sad and this is horrifying. Like that's what teachers do. The thing that we're putting at risk is are those teachers like A, leaving the classroom, um, B, having serious men. I mean, you don't out the student. Like there's, I'm not a, a teacher by trade. I just get the privilege of working with a lot of them. Teachers do not out students. That's not a thing. Whether or not they agree with them or not, they don't. These are their children. Um, so by putting these laws on the books in this way, it's basically asking all of our educators to go into the classroom every day, educate our students, take care of our students, meet their most basic needs, and try not to get arrested while you're doing it. Mm -hmm. And that's just not a fair place. And that's not an honest um, approach to a country who believes, who we say we believe in free, high quality public education for all of our students. Mm -hmm. That's not a fair place to put our teachers or administrators. And, you know, but I watch them, they're working very hard. They're working with their colleagues, with their school boards. It's a very collaborative thing. And then we haven't even gotten into the school board stuff. You know, that's a whole nother. There was a series, there were a series of laws that would dictate how, um, you know, having partisan elections around um, school boards, things like that. We need people who care about education and represent every perspective in the community sitting on our school board. That's right. We don't need a whole bunch of one party or a whole bunch of the other. We need people who represent all of them because then they will make the, the best choices for the students in our schools mm -hmm, mm -hmm, that they represent. Um, I think you said that you have um, some updates for the bill so far that have been um, circling. <laughs> yeah, I I mean, they're updates if you've not heard of them. Um, they, I don't know that I have the most current, um, but there are a few. And I'm going to go ahead and give the, the bill name or numbers so that people can look them up. There's a classroom censorship bill, House Bill 2078, which decreases the time um, allowed to provide curriculum and lesson plans to parents. Essentially, last year there was a, well, maybe not last year, in the recent past, there was a law that was passed that if you have an issue with something that your students are learning at school, they have to show you the curriculum, the standard, and in the lesson plan how they taught that particular thing. And it was within a reasonable time was what, how they put it. This puts it into five days rather than just the reasonable amount of time. Mm -hmm. And they have to provide it to the school board members. So to your point earlier, the, the problem is not that they're trying to hide and sneak things into their curriculum. The thing is, if they think something's going to get flagged and they've got a whole life or a second or third job and other things they want to do, they will be less likely to teach that concept because they are afraid that this might happen. And I, um, so it is waiting um, to go through, I believe the Senate committees, education committees. Um, there's one that um, House Bill 2546, which outlaws, outlaws classroom instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity for grades pre-K through fifth grade. Um, so we were particularly concerned about this when it was paired with the rules that Superintendent um, Walters had. Um, but essentially, the language is very similar to that of Florida's Don't Say Gay law. So wanting to make sure that, you know, essentially, these students are too fragile and too um, could be too harmed to talk about things like, you know, basic biology for their own bodies. Um, and then... Another one that is confusing to folks is House Bill 1397. Um, it's mandating curriculum curriculum uh, 
include a unit on the civil rights movement, providing a description of the curriculum, but it directs the state superintendent of public instruction to prepare and make available these materials. So essentially, instead of our teachers who are from various communities with various backgrounds, who know their students, who can prepare a lesson on the civil rights and how it most impacted their students' community, Mm -hmm. it would be lessons and materials that would come straight from the superintendent of public instruction. And that's what they would be required to teach. And so that is problematic for a couple of reasons, because if it gets, once it gets to the floor Um, My understanding is that every educator, Republican and Democrat, have disagreed with this. But when you get down on the floor and they're debating and they're saying you don't want civil rights taught in our schools, it puts you in a really bad situation. Um, It's not that we don't want civil rights. Yes, please teach that. But let's trust our educators who know their communities, who have are up on the best pedagogy and, you know, um, strategies for teaching these hard lessons, let's let them be the experts rather than having that just dropped on them. So those are a few um, that we're we're keeping an eye on. Cool. That's very interesting. (laughs) I have one more. I'm so sorry. Oh, go for it. Because we're in Oklahoma, we don't get to not talk about guns. House Bill 2139 reduces the training requirements from 30 hours to eight hours, allowing guns on school campuses if this policy is adopted by private schools or school boards. So essentially a private school or a school board could say, yes, you're allowed to do this. And that would reduce the training to eight hours, which is essentially just this is how a gun works. Um, And then those guns would be allowed to be on campus with anyone who wanted to have them. And so that is something that's also um, we've been paying attention to and very concerned about, particularly um, with the horrible things that have happened just even in recent weeks. um, Teachers don't feel safe with that being the case. Um, And it's also it's very hard to build relationships when you're just imagining the worst case scenario about your students every single day. Um, all of that topped with absolutely zero evidence that having more guns on campuses, even with trained professionals, reduces school shootings. So those are the ones that we're kind of, that I'm keeping an eye on, that that people should kind of pay attention to. And again, they've made them out of the house of origin um, and they're waiting for committee assignments. That has been stalled out by what I think we're about to talk about next. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, there's like, uh, you know, this tension between uh, the senator, um, the Senate uh, pro temp and uh, the House, the Speaker of the House. Um, So as of March 27th, this is the last time, the last update that I read was on March 27th. The Senate changed the uh, House Bill 1935, which is the Oklahoma parental tax credit. They changed the income cap on it to $250,000, which before anyone with any amount of income, if you could be, if you were a millionaire, you could get this tax credit. Um, and, And the Senate wanted to put an income cap on it so that basically, um, we're giving this tax credit to people who need it. <laughs> I know that's kind of disputed too. Two hundred fifty thousand dollars of income. Do you really need it? But that was the premise behind it. And then House Bill two seven seven five, which is the teachers' um, pay bill, it raised the um, the pay raises uh, from twenty five hundred dollars up to six thousand dollars. 
And so um, if, if for anyone who doesn't know, when a bill is going through uh, the legislative uh, process, it, it comes from either the House or the Senate. And then it gets approved and then it has to go to the other one. So if it came from the House, it has to go to the Senate and then also has to be approved to the Senate. And then it goes upwards from there. So um, the Speaker of the House, uh, McCall, he told the Senate um, that they need to hear the package that the House presented as it was um, or anything that the Senate seem, sends over to the House is going to automatically going to die. They're not going to work with them at all. And, you know, that just within itself is not good leadership, in my opinion. Um, and I definitely hate to say it like that, but we're in an era, like I was saying earlier, where we're supposed to be focused on nonpartisanship. So, um and have, you know, kind of seeing the humanity in other people and having other people's backs no matter what and trying to come to a middle so that we can be a better Oklahoma, be a better United States, be a better world. So if you put that hard um, end on, you know, if you don't do what I'm telling you to do, then we're not going to help you at all. Where are we going with this? So, yeah, definitely want to know your opinion on this, Amy and Stephanie. You know, what's funny is I was just thinking we were talking my book club you know, Mabel Bassett the other day, we were talking, we got to talking about Hobbes and Leviathan and might is right. And you know what I mean? Like the philosophies of, and this is what, for some reason, this kind of, which is exactly like you were saying, it's kind of the opposite of what you're talking about, the way we come together and deliberate or, you know, in this, I don't know, it makes me think of that might is right era, you know, is that part of the tension too that we're talking about? Not only are we all confused, but whether it's guns or ultimatums or behaviors that feel, you know, mine is bigger than yours kind of like, <laughs> I don't know if that's, that's, that's I don't well, know. I mean, I think like, one way to, th I mean, leadership on in both chambers are close to terming out, if not terming out. And I assume have want additional, you know, want to continue in politics. So I mean, one way to think about it is, you know, there, we know what will help our schools I and mean, we can, we, we know that we need, well, we need more resources. So whether that comes through, you know, supporting our teachers more, classroom supplies, buildings, safety, however you want to look at it, we need more resources in our schools. Um, we also have collectively decided based on who was elected that some, you know, many people, I disagree with them, feel that it is okay. It is within the um, our laws to use um, private or public money for private education. Um, those two things are deeply in tension right now. Because one, if you do that, you're going to take away resources. Right. No matter what. So agree with it, disagree with it, it will take away resources. So what we have to do is they have to come to some agreement on how are we going to get enough resources that people are okay with the fact that we're going to take some away. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it's all going to the same thing. It feels to me more like, um, you know, when you go to a Thunder game and they play on the big screen, the hats with the nut under the hat, and it's like, where is it? That's what we're trying to do is like hide it. And 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 deplete resources from really the people who need it the most. Yeah. Let, um, let yeah. me um, quickly say, because um, I didn't really go into this. So that House Bill 1935, what it is, is um, it, there's a bucket of funds that are for public education. 
And um, there was a big hullabaloo about vouchers that went on for a while. And so the voucher um, conversation kind of died down. And what came up while the conversation, the voucher conversation was dying down was this House Bill 1935. And so this tax credit is going to come. And I don't have the numbers written down, but I want to say it started out at like um, $3,000 per family um, that you get a tax credit. No, per student, not per family, per student. Um, it may be $2,000 for um, homeschool. The $3,000 is for private school and the $2,000 is for um, homeschool. And those numbers could be wrong. Don't don't quote me on that. Look it up for yourself. Um, but so this tax credit, when people file their taxes, they're going to get this tax credit. But the bucket of funds that it's going to come out of is the public education fund. So no matter what, no matter which version of the bill passes, money is coming out of the public education system to fund the private um, education, people that have their kids in private school and homeschool. And so the big argument is if people have their kids in private school, they can afford it. And those kids are already more well-to-do than the kids that ha that need a public education. So that's where the tension rises from people in Oklahoma, but I would say also at the legislative building, because some of the legislators, they realize like, no, public schools need their money. We should not be giving that money to um, people whose children are in private school. So I just kind of wanted to dis distinguish that. Yeah. And I think yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, when you're depleting resources, whether it's a voucher or tax credit, that's what you're doing. The other thing that it does, and, and I have friends who work, run, attend private ed, private schools. There's nothing wrong with private schools. The issue comes when we um, are putting public dollars there. Um, so it's not about school choice. Parents should get to choose. I want to choose a public school for my kids. I can't, I wouldn't be able to choose a public school for my kid if they don't have teachers to teach or if they don't have a building that's safe. So it's not taking away, I mean, it's not giving more choices to people. It's actually taking away choices. Everyone has the choice to go to a private school if they can find the resources. The other thing is it's around regulation. We've decided as a country that we, and we have civil, you know, we have laws that protect the civil rights of our children. And those are protected outright in our public schools. And good, bad, or otherwise, we've decided to protect them by schools who adhere to certain things and allow their students to hear honest history, allow students to have real science in their schools, they get more funding from the federal government. This is something that has come into, you know, into Oklahoma where it's like, well, we'll just reject that money. Well, what you're actually rejecting is not that students are having those conversations. What you're rejecting is federal funding that's feeding our children, federal funding that's providing them basic clothing, healthcare, vaccines, all of these things. That's what you're denying when you say you're not going to do that. Those are protected for our children in our private, in our public schools. In private schools, it's just that. You get to decide. There are parent boards that get to decide 
what comes in and out of their school. There's nothing wrong with that. But we need to have both and we need to support both. And the, you know, when we're paying with our taxes, and it is, you know, people will say, well, this is my money. I'm now, you know, I'm just getting to keep it through a credit. That's not true. What our taxes do is actually pay for these services that we've decided collectively and democratically that we all should have. Um, so, I, I mean, I think it's interesting to see where this goes. It sounds to me like they're just going to, as my grandmother would say, fuss over this for a good long time. And then it'll come down to the budget like it always does. There'll be a hard deadline and decisions that no one is happy with will be made. And that's sad to me. I agree. I was telling somebody earlier, um, it kind of feels like you can parallel it to the argument about reverse racism where you've got people that say, oh, black lives matter. Oh, brown lives matter. And then you've got people that say, well, if you don't also say that white lives matter, then you're the racist. Like, you know, the original problem, the original people who were racist are not the racist. You're now the racist. So it's like the the kids that are in public school, um, you know, oh, they need the money. We definitely need the, the federal dollars and the state law dollars. We need to take care of the kids who have a public school. But then when you say, oh, well, you're only focused on the kids in public school and you're not fo focused on the kids in public school, then you're the one that is being stereotypical and you don't care about the kids that are in private school because you only want to give money to the kids that are in public school. So I, that, I just thought that was a good way to kind of explain it. Well, and I think let's not be like, let's be really clear here, too. The public school was never intended and, in my opinion, never should be viewed as like if you can't get into private school or you can't afford it, right. that's your alternative. Right. There is a very, you know, if your child has special needs, they will be receive more holistic services in a public school. Like that's a fact. We can argue all day long, but I will show you the, the, the data. Um, if you I mean, the testing alone. I mean, many people who are sitting in public or private schools can't afford for their child to be adequately assessed to even see what is going on with mm -hmm. that student so that they can receive the services, much less get the services. So, you know, many people choose public school for lots of different reasons, and they are losing that choice right. with these laws that are passing. They're losing that choice. Yeah, it's like it's a total gaslight because just because you're focused on the person that is not as well to do does not mean at all that you don't. It doesn't mean that the people that are saying Black Lives Matter don't care about white lives. That is not true. You should not correlate the two with each other. And just because people are focused on helping kids in public school, that does not mean that they don't care about what's going to happen to the kids in private school. It's just not true. Well, <laughs> I think we've had a pretty long conversation. Um, I, I encourage everyone to pay attention to what um, is happening right now. We know that it is confusing. We hope that we've shed a little bit of light. There is um, a, a nonprofit, I believe they're a nonprofit, called the Parent Legislative Action Committee. Um, they're PLAC.org. They have a lot of good information on their website and they have a day at the Capitol on April the 10th from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. So that would be the perfect time to go talk to your legislators, get a little more information, give your opinion on everything that we're talking about and even more. And just simply say, you know, hey, I'm this person. I live at such and such and such. And this is where I think Oklahoma legislators need to do 
with our tax dollars. Um, can you think of any other days at the Capitol, um, I, Amy or Stephanie? Well, we did mention that since this is going out to league members that May the 4th and May the 9th are both days that we'll be at the Capitol advocating with. On May the 4th, it will be advocating with Oklahomans for criminal justice reform. And on uh, May the 9th, we'll be there with Oklahoma Policy Institute. So please put those dates on your calendars. I will be there. <laughs> Amy? Yeah, I have one and I will share the the link with you. Um, Generation Citizen um, is, um, we have some research that came out recently and we're hosting a series of events. There's one on April 19th at 5 p.m. Central Time. It's online so you can watch it from the comfort of your home and part actually participate in it. But it's generational equity in coalition building. And um this has to do with with education because you talk to a lot of people and if their kid is not in school or their grandkids not in school, they don't really know what's happening, um, which is part of the problem. And I admit I was like that a little bit before I had children. I didn't realize it. Um, but it's really important that we see, you know, intergenerational support for all of these issues. And so this workshop is um, going to um, help kind of train. So during this three-part series, participants will have an interactive opportunity to learn, practice, and build new skills drawn directly from our uh, most recent research and report beyond passing the torch. Recommendations on leveraging age diversity to build a stronger democracy. So if you're looking for some additional resources, um, it's uh, across the country, there'll be people participating. Um, so I would encourage people to partic participate. It's a bit.ly link. It's bit.ly dash generational equity and civics. I'll just share that. And if you want to put it in the chat of the um, wherever. That <laughs> we could definitely do that. We could definitely do that. Um, and so, yeah, if you guys go to days at the Capitol, we'll also the League of Women Voters, Oklahoma County will also be at Bell Isle Library on April 12th between uh, 6 and 7 p.m. with Oklahoma Policy Institute talking about some more things. Hope to see you there. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you next time. Bye. Tushalicious Talk is part of the Breaking Ice, Building Bridges community podcast platform brought to you by Possibilities, Inc.